Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the joy of the Spirit evident amongst those who have gathered here this morning. Father, why is it that we should have to gather and and carry a somber attitude as if to suggest that you only receive the worship of those who are serious or so full of themselves and piety that we can't enjoy you as you call us to do? I pray, Father, we would never let levity become a substitute, Father, for fear of the Lord or for heartfelt and sincere worship. But, Father, I also am thankful that we do we can come into a place like this on a Sunday and truly enjoy you and enjoy the freedom that comes with a knowledge that you have paid the price for our sin, that you have freed us from the slavery to the devil that we knew beforehand. I thank you, Father, that through your son, we have a glorious future awaiting us and and we can take great pleasure and excitement in these things. And even in the meantime, as we reflect on Acts 2, we can consider the joy of the spirit that comes upon the church by faith and how that works its way through our lives. What a blessing these things are, Father, especially on a weekend that's dedicated to Thanksgiving. I thank you, Lord, that we have that more than anything else. And, Father, as we come to you today in your word, we are reminded yet again that the writer said these things are difficult to explain. Made more so in some cases because we may not be prepared enough to accept them. But, Father, your word can make us all prepared. Your word, Father, can make us equal to the task. Your word can develop us into the man or woman we are to be in Christ so that we can listen to you and hear you fully. And I pray, Father, you would do that this morning. You would make us equal to this task of understanding who Melchizedek was and why he matters to us, Father, so that we can use that knowledge in in the way you intend. We look forward to hearing from your spirit this morning, Father. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So who is Melchizedek and why do we care about this guy? Last week, we learned the first half of that. We learned who he was. Last week, we learned he's more than a metaphor. He's more than myth. And he's even more than picture. His name is actually a title. Melchizedek means the Lord is righteous. And in the time we knew of him from Genesis to the man who met Abraham as a priest of God Most High on earth, He comes as part of a succession of priests, or the Bible uses the word order to mean succession, beginning with Adam, continuing through a line of men, ending with Christ, all of them Melchizedek in their day. The man who held the title in Abraham's day, we learned last week, was the ninth man to hold this position, and he was one of Noah's sons, Shem. His appearance in the story of Abraham, in the book of Genesis, was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit in such a way that he would create this compelling picture of Christ. Moses never bothered to tell us that Melchizedek was Shem. He chose instead to ignore this man's genealogy and his identity and just make him appear out of nowhere, as if to have no mother and father, as if he had no beginning. And then he drops off the scene just as suddenly, as if he never dies. And that's very unusual in a book that devotes so much time and attention to the origins of people and to the days and the lengths of their life. Furthermore, he was a king of a city, a Jebusite city called Salem, a city that's eventually going to become Jerusalem. And in that way, of course, he mirrors Christ as king over Jerusalem one day. All of those details show us that Melchizedek and his priesthood, which he represents, pictures Christ as our high priest, in that same order, in that same priesthood, one that Jesus eventually inherited from his father, Joseph. 
Now, if you are new to this study today, you did not attend last week or you're visiting this week. I am absolutely certain that the things I just recounted to you are first confusing or at the very least new and perhaps in your mind unorthodox and to some degree surprising. That is why the writer began in chapter five when he was introducing this topic and spoke to the church and said, now concerning him, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain because you have become slow of hearing. The writer's point then is just as much true today. We are not more intelligent than the people of the early church. We are not inherently more capable of understanding these things. I think as a rule in the church corporately, we are just as untaught on these things as they seem to have been. And therefore, the concept of some of these things will be a bit difficult. Having said that, we can learn and move through them. So the writer last week answered, who is Melchizedek? If that's not something you heard, let me encourage you. It's online, as you already know, and it's available to be heard. I hope you will go take advantage of that. You may find a bit of what we do today to clarify, but you may also find yourself a little behind the curve trying to figure it out as we go. Uh, You'll catch up, I hope. But having answered who is he, specifically who is this guy, we only got about halfway through the chapter because that's not the point. This is something our Sunday school class spent the better part of an hour on this morning talking about. We talked on this whole point of Melchizedek following up from last Sunday. And as we did that this morning, we came to the conclusion that if this was nothing more than a guy serving as a picture of Christ, as interesting as that may be, it would serve very little purpose theologically. We have lots of pictures of Christ. Why do we need one more? The point of this man and his life is not simply to present a picture of Christ. That's the least of it, though he is obviously one. The point of it is to explain everything the writer is now going to teach in the end of seven and all of chapter eight and into chapter nine. It's all based on the understanding of who Melchizedek is. Remember, he says concerning him, we have much to say. And that's much more than just chapter seven. To get to that, we have to begin with the next question. The second one I offered this morning, which is we know now who he is. So why do we care about him? What makes him important or relevant to a conversation about how Christians live today. And the answer comes beginning in the next part of chapter 7. In this part, we're going to find what I think is the most challenging portion of the teaching on Melchizedek. It is probably the part that the writer was thinking about when he said this is difficult. But the complexity of this teaching can be addressed by breaking it down into three parts, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Three simple ideas, three simple points. The first of these points is the writer explains the significance of God having established two different priesthoods. He begins that in chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. The writer says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity there takes place a change of law also for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated on the altar at the altar for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests and this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek who has become Such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And it it took me 
a good three hours just to work through this section, and I did it twice. First time through, I just said, no, that's not going to work, and I started over. And I'm not saying that with any purpose except to simply illustrate, if you're confused or you find this difficult to follow, join the club. But hopefully, if I've done my part properly under the inspiration of the Spirit in teaching this, you and I will both get there in the same way. Let's see if we can do that. Beginning with what the writer says in verse 11, he points out that if the Levitical priesthood, now friends, that's the priesthood established in the law of Moses. If that priesthood were able to address the problem of our sin at its core level, then God would never have established another priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was that priesthood of the law, and it was given to Israel so that they could officiate in the tabernacle, in the sacrifices. Friends, if that was enough to satisfy God for our sin, he would have left well enough alone. That's what the writer just said. But he didn't. In the scripture, we find there is another order of priests. This order is called the order of Melchizedek. They are not the same as those priests that serve in the tabernacle, the Levitical priests. Now, think about how these two priests relate, historically speaking, these two orders. For example, which one came first? The Melchizedek order comes first. We know that because it's mentioned in Genesis long before the giving of the law. Then following that, you have the Levitical priesthood. Now, that second priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, it came as part of a law that was given to Israel. And in that law, the priesthood itself is established. The rules for it are established. Who can have it, how they serve and so on. And that's to be expected, the writer says, because when you have a change in priesthood, you have to have a corresponding law to back up that priesthood. So he says there was a change of priesthood. There was the priesthood of Melchizedek in existence. And then Israel was given a new, different priesthood on top of that, the priesthood of Levi. And so they had to have a new law given with it. Now, if you were a Jew at this point in the first century, a Christian, let's say a, a Jew who had become Christian, Having seen that history, you might conclude something. You might conclude that the Levitical order was an improved version of priesthood. Because in your minds, you would say, well, we had this one, Melchizedek. Then we got this new one. And certainly God's not going to move backwards, is he? He must be moving forwards in some sense. So this new one must be the better one. Having that new one, this now must be the one that I focus on for my salvation, for meeting God, for being reconciled with God. To that thinking, the writer says, well, friends, if the Levitical order was capable of making men perfect, then it should be the last word from God concerning priesthood. Right. Forevermore after that, the only thing he should ever talk about is Levitical priests. And then when the Messiah comes, whenever that's meant to be, then we would expect him to come in the line of Aaron. If the Aaronic priesthood was the last word on priests, then our Messiah would have to be of that priesthood. He's not going to be of a lesser priesthood. So he would come as an Aaronic priest so that he can meet the requirements because the law said you cannot be a Levitical priest unless you come from that line of Aaron. That was the rule. So the first point is, why do we have two priesthoods? We have two priesthoods because God established two. It's just that simple. I told you these are simple points. So that's the first thing he says. Secondly, the writer points out, that when you look at Christ as we now understand him, the Messiah now has been revealed in Christ, in Jesus of Nazareth. When you look at him, you find that he cannot meet the test to be an Aaronic priest. He can't. The writer says in verse 12 that the only way to change the rules for who can serve as a priest is if God himself changes the law that regulates the priesthood. 
Remember back in chapter 5? I'm going to take you back to something for a minute. Remember in chapter 5, the writer began the conversation on priests by saying this. He said that a priest must be appointed by God to serve from among those he represents. Chapter 5, 1, it says, For every high priest is taken from among men and is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Now, God is the one appointing. God is the one taking. And that has to be done from among men. That's why we said back in chapter 5 that Jesus had to be born of flesh in order to be qualified as a priest because priests are taken from among those they represent. And he has to be appointed by God. So, friends, here's what the writer is leading us to. He's saying a high priest must be appointed by God. But according to the law of Moses, only men born in the tribe of Levi, of Aaron, could qualify as a priest in that order. And then he says in verses 13 and 14, but the one concerning these things, the Messiah, he never came from the right tribe. He comes from a tribe, Judah, which the law makes no provision for. When it comes to priesthood, you, you can't be a priest if you're from the tribe of Judah. But Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Now we have a problem. If the Messiah can't be our priest, if he's not qualified to be a priest, then he can't be our intercessor. If he can't be our intercessor, then he can't carry our sins before the Lord. He can't do the work we need done for the sake of our sin. We're stuck. This Messiah that we depend on can't do the very thing we depend on. If, if the Levitical priesthood is the chief priesthood, the highest priesthood, the preeminent priesthood, because our Messiah can't carry that water. So, number two, Jesus, the Messiah, could not qualify as an Aaronic priest. Point number three, the Messiah had to come then in the only other order that is available. There are only two orders listed in Scripture. There's either the order of Melchizedek or the order of Levi, or the Aaronic order, we say. He can't qualify as the one that would tell us that there's only one other one he can qualify from. And that is the order of Melchizedek. And if our Messiah is brought in the order of Melchizedek, then by definition, that is the superior order. His order is the superior order. In verse 15, the writer says, and notice this, this is where it starts to get tough. He says, this is clearer still if another priest arises in the likeness of. Or you could say in the manner of Melchizedek. Now, what is he saying there? When he uses the word this, he's referring to this idea of the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood. So let me put those words in there. He says the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood is clearer still if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. What he's saying in simple words is this. You can tell the Melchizedek order is the preeminent order. By the fact that the Messiah was designated to come from that order. And if, on the other hand, Levitical priests were the superiority, then the Messiah would never have sought his qualification under some other order. He would have come in the likeness of an Aaronic priest. Now, Jesus could not meet the requirements for Levitical priesthood. But, friends, he is literally the only one who could meet the requirements of the order of Melchizedek. He is not one among many. He is literally the only one who could meet it. In verses 15 and 16, the writer says, the priests of Melchizedek had to be qualified by more than a physical requirement. Think about what the requirements were to be a Levitical priest. You had to be born, physically born, of the right tribe. After that, anyone could do it. I mean, you had to be consecrated. 
you had to come into it through the right process. Yeah, but in terms of what allowed you to be a part of that, it was just who you were born under. If you were in the right tribe, you're, you're potentially a priest, a Levitical priest. But that didn't work for the Melchizedek order. First, the Melchizedek order required that the person inherit the seed promise. Remember this? We talked a little bit last week. The seed promise is that promise that began in the garden and traces its way all the way to Christ. The promise that there would be a seed who would crush the head of Satan. That promise descended from Adam through a certain line of men all the way to Christ. We traced that when we looked at the story in Genesis, as far as it's taken in the, in the book of Genesis. How do you get the seed promise? Who can get it? Think about the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How did Isaac get it over his brother Ishmael? Because God assigned it to him. How did, in the case of Jacob and his brother Esau, how did Jacob get it and Esau not get it? Esau I hated, Jacob I loved. It was selected while they were still in the womb, so that no man would have a cause to say it was based on will or running, but on the God who has mercy, Paul says. That it is entirely the sovereignty of God who decides such things. God said, it will be Jacob. I said so. End of story. And there's no reason beyond the fact that I said so. Don't try to make one up. That's not because Jacob was better. It's not because I saw he would be better. It's not because I looked forward in time and I thought he deserved it more. It's because I said so. That's what Romans 9 teaches. So the Melchizedek order traces with the seed promise. So by definition, the ultimate evidence of God's approval, if you will, or his selection is in this process of him deciding the day and the family of your birth. You could not inherit the order of Melchizedek except that your father had it and that he died in time for you to receive it. That's it. That's the ultimate sign of God's approval and that he orchestrates your life to arrive at that outcome. And that means that Jesus could not have appropriated this title for himself just because he wanted it. He had to be born at the right time of the right person. And God ensured that that happened. Furthermore, the father promised his son that he would hold on to this position once he obtained it forever. Look at verse 17. The author quotes from Psalms 110 to prove this argument. David wrote in that song that the Messiah would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then secondly, that he would hold it forever. But friends, an order or as we've said before, the word order means succession. The succession of something can only be yours forever if you never die. Because when you die, it moves on to the next generation. That's what a succession is. But if Jesus is said to be the one who holds this office forever, then what's being said is he's never going to die. He's going to live forever such that it never needs to be handed down. But before him, as every man inherited the office of Melchizedek and they held it until they died, the father set for them a period of time in which they could hold it. But then they were ultimately forced to hand it to someone else at their death. But the father set for his son a requirement, stating in an oath, declaring, you will be a priest, you will be a priest in this order, and you will hold it forever. That's why the writer says, by Jesus' indestructible life, he alone qualifies himself to be the Messiah of Psalm 110. First was Melchizedek, the second was Levitical. But that doesn't mean the Levitical is more important, because the Bible itself, speaking through the Psalms, said that Jesus would come in the former of the two, not in the latter of the two. And once he has it, he holds it forever. Now, we still haven't understood the full depth of it. We're just getting started. Verses 18 through 22. He says, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. 
for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And in as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, I will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So the writer uses this on the one hand, on the other hand, comparison. And he's comparing between the Aaronic priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. He says, on the one hand, the law, which is how we got the Aaronic priesthood, had to be set aside. Now, did you catch that? He's, he's saying the law is set aside at a certain point in time, after some time. It was temporary. It was designed and intended to be temporary. The law was weak, he says. The law is useless. What he means, of course, is with respect to solving the problem of sin, of putting our sin away from us, of reconciling us to God. It can't do that. The intercessors of the Levitical priesthood do not reconcile us to God. That was never their purpose. The believers, the saints of the Old Testament, the saints of Israel were not reconciled to God because of their Aaronic priests. They lived in the time of the law, yes, but the purpose of the law in their life was no different than it would be for someone today. Are you reconciled to God by the law? No. So neither were they. Were priests under the law, their intercessors before the throne room of God? No more than they would be for you now. These were not intercessors for the needs of salvation. These were not men who led you to God for the sake of salvation. They officiated at a tabernacle service that was instituted under a law whose purpose was very different than creating opportunity for salvation, than leading us into salvation. It led us there indirectly, but those priests were not the priests that interceded for men before the Lord. They could not give us the hope that we can draw near to God. We would always have sin as our barrier before God. At best, what they did was create a temporary covering that allowed for fellowship under the covenant of law. So now we get to the fundamental question. If the priesthood of Christ comes in a form that is different than the priesthood given to Israel, in the order of Melchizedek, and if when you change priests, you're changing law, then it stands to reason that for men before the law, there was the order of Melchizedek, then for the men of Israel during the time of law, there was the order of Levi. And then if Christ comes into the order of Melchizedek again, we've gone back again. We've changed back. The law now has reverted back. Paul says in Galatians 3.19, Paul says, why the law then? Isn't that the question we're asking right now? Why the law then? If God was never intending that the Levitical priests were the solution, in fact, if he knew his son was going to come with the priesthood of Melchizedek, then why, why bother with this interruption? Why didn't we just have Melchizedek priests all the way through? Why the law then? Paul says it was added. Before you go any further in that verse, think about the word added. What does add mean? It means you start with something and you put something else with it. Well, we know what the, the new thing is. It's the law. It was added. But that begs the question, what was the thing that was already there? What was already there that you're adding to? This law was added, Paul says, because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until. Well, wait a minute. Added until. Well, that implies temporary addition. Added until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now we have this juxtapositioning of law and promise. A promise is an oath, as the writer in Hebrews has said a minute ago, an oath. 
You have a law which created a certain kind of priesthood. That's a temporary institution, and it was added to something. And it's not the means by which we gain righteousness. It was added until a seed came that fulfilled a promise. So you have law and you have promise. You had a promise that hadn't been fulfilled, so you had a law added to the promise. So the thing that was being added to was the promise of a seed. That is the salvation promise that you would have Messiah come someday. But until that day, until the Messiah's arrival, all you have is the promise. And faith in the promise was salvation for those who accepted it. We're now learning that that promise had its own priesthood. Just as the law had a priesthood, the promise had a priesthood. And we can even take the word promise there and use a different word. We can talk about it as the law of its own. You have the law of Moses and the law of Christ. You had the law of Moses dictating a certain priesthood. You had the law of Christ presenting its own priesthood. The law of Moses was ordained because of sin. The promise of Christ, the law of Christ, was ordained so that we might obtain righteousness. That's why the priesthood associated with the promise is called Melchizedek, which means the Lord is my righteousness. Its whole point is to echo that through this mediator, through this promise, will come your righteousness. In the meantime, I'm going to give you a law, specifically to Israel, which holds you as a custodian to bridge the time between when I've spoken the promise and when I will bring it into fruition through Christ. Paul says that in Galatians 3, later in 3.23 through 26, he says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So to summarize where we've reached at this point, the order of Melchizedek is the priesthood associated with the seed promise given to Adam and woman, carried down to Isaac, then Jacob on its way to Christ. This is the priesthood that leads us to righteousness because it is the priesthood of Messiah. It was established not on the basis of works of law, but by word or oath or promise spoken by God. By this priesthood, men are made righteous because it depends on the righteousness of our Lord, not our own. That's why the priesthood is called the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is righteous. It is a priesthood that exists forever since our high priest never dies and it will never be replaced. In all these things, it shows itself to be superior to the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical order didn't come by way of a promise. It came by way of a covenant based on works, works which Israel promptly disobeyed. Like the law itself, it cannot make men perfect. The priesthood of the Levites only serves to remind us that we have sin and we need sacrifice for it. That's all it accomplished. It is weak. It is useless. And therefore, and here's the point, friends, of what all of this is leading to. The point in all this is the covenant that established the one that is the law is inferior to the covenant that established the other. What the writer's alluding to here is his next main topic into chapter 8, and it is the point of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, as it turns out, becomes a key for understanding that if the old covenant, having established the law and the Levitical priesthood, if those things are weak and useless, then they are to be replaced by better things. Naturally, the covenant that replaced them must be the one that serves to provide the better things. We'll say more about that in chapter 8. Let's finish what he does in 7 by looking at the way this applies to those who worship 
and follow Christ as believers. This is the application for us today. He says the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So the point is, where do you go for intercession before the living God? Now, in the writer's day, these two priesthoods still existed, at least to a degree. The the temple, as best we understand, was still standing in the day this was written. It was soon to disappear, but it was probably still at work in that day. So if you were a Christian and Jewish, you had two choices when it came to where do you go for intercession? And the choices couldn't have been more stark. You had, on the one hand, this ritual that was embedded in culture. It was sort of the archetype of what priesthood looked like. I was joking with our class at Sunday school about what do you see in the culture when they want to represent religion, let's say on a TV show or in a movie. Where do they go? What what imagery do they run to when we have to show religion showing up somewhere, when you need a, a person to represent God? Don't they all run to the Catholic priest? In fact, even on news shows, when they need to interview someone on some news program that has a segment on something related to religion, who do they get as their commentator? It's always the Catholic priest. Almost always. That stereotype actually has just become a caricature, right? It's what you think of when you don't know the Lord. And I'm not saying that all Catholics are without faith. I'm not saying all priests are without faith. I have no idea. I'm saying to the culture, the culture of unbelief runs to icons and stereotypes in place of true faith because that's all they have. And this is somewhat like that, too. In the day of the early church, if you came to know Christ and you were Jewish, you could still walk to Jerusalem, show up at the temple where they were still doing the daily sacrifices, and you could participate through the Levitical priesthood in that performance, in that ritual, whose function ceased to have any purpose. You could do that. But on the other hand, why would you do that? Though you understood Christ for who he was and you believed in him as your Messiah, you didn't understand that the priesthood of Melchizedek supersedes and is greater than the priesthood of the Levitical order. It's not strictly a matter of faith. Some have wrapped this up to say, well, anyone who was truly of God and knew the Lord with, with sincere intent would never think to go sacrifice at a temple with Levitical priests. That's not a fair characterization of, of what people really do, I think. That's not a fair characterization even of what you see people do today. There are people who I think are believers within the Catholic tradition who still go into that little booth and confess their sins to some guy who calls himself a priest and wears a special outfit because it fits the mindset that has been taught that that's where you have to go. It's ritual. It doesn't negate their faith necessarily. It simply illustrates the immaturity of it. Now, for many others, there is no faith. But the point is that in light of the options that Jewish believers had, some were returning to the temple. Some were choosing to practice under the law, even though they had placed their faith in Jesus as Messiah. They saw Levitical priests as their intercessors because they saw Jesus as unqualified as priest. And so he was under the law. What they didn't understand was there was another and better priesthood 
That is Melchizedek. Now, obviously, this behavior is incompatible with faith in Christ, but it's not a disqualification. And so a true Christian can still fall prey to this kind of thing, even as you see some doing today. If you know Christ to be your savior, then seek forgiveness from him alone and through no one else. And as the writer points out, the worthless nature of the Levitical priests gave them no benefit. Notice how he calls them the former priests, because throughout history, they were always dying off. Why is that important? Well, friends, why should you take your problem of sin and its consequence, which is death, and take it before someone who himself is dying of the very same problem? Who is going to solve your problem if they're suffering by the same result? Why do you sit in a booth and confess your sin to a man who is just as sinful on the other side of that screen? To what benefit is that person as an intercessor when they have not even transcended that problem themselves? Where do they offer a solution? Why trust someone who dies in the end? Because it means that person is no closer to perfection than you are. And that's the whole journey. That is what you're seeking to be reconciled to God in perfection. What we need instead is someone who has already obtained what we seek. Someone who is already at peace with the father. Someone who is already sinless. That person has a solution. Moreover, they can be an intercessor because they can stand before God in their sinlessness and make the claims for us that we can't make on our own. We want the priest who never dies. We want the one who can offer us salvation. And of course, that is Christ. The writer says in verse 25, Jesus lives forever to intercede for us and to make us perfect. That's the key difference. Not only is he qualified to intercede, but he also has the power to extend what he has to us to make us perfect. This entire chapter is summarized in verse 28. The law appointed priests who were weak, but it was an oath, a promise that appointed God's son to be the perfect high priest of a different order. The oath was written after the law existed. The Psalms were written after the Levitical priesthood came into being. So here we are later than the Levitical priesthood. God's saying to his son, you're going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What he's saying is this other order I brought alongside. That's not the important one. It was the one I started with. And Christ will be in that order. And so that is the order we look to. Finally, no discussion of priesthood would be complete without acknowledging, friends, that you and I form a priesthood of our own today. There was a high priest in Israel under the Levitical order, but there were also regular priests. And if we have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek today, who are his regular priests? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God and you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What he's saying is you and I, as we come into faith and have been grafted into this promise, into this oath, we become priests of an order that Jesus is high priest of. We become priests in the Melchizedek order. We have a responsibility, like every priest, to represent God to the people before the world. He says that we have been made priests, he says, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. We are just like the priests of old, like Noah is called the preacher of righteousness, like Solomon called himself the preacher of righteousness. Both of those men held the Melchizedek order for a time. We likewise have been grafted into this order. You have a high priest 
No one comes through you to get to the Father. You're not going to go into a little booth and take people's confession. Remember, those are the stereotypes. Those are the icons. Those are not the real ways in which priesthood is to be displayed on earth. Instead, the real purpose of a priest is to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness so that others may join us and represent his godliness before the world. To become an army of servants that he may use to minister. So, friends, while it's interesting to study Melchizedek, And it will be useful to understanding what comes later in this book. Don't miss the application even here at the end of this chapter. Are we serving up to the standards of this priesthood that we have joined into by faith? That's our call as priests. Let's come back into this next week in chapter 8. As we do that, we'll begin to see the true outworking of this understanding of Melchizedek. That is, that there is now, therefore, a change in law. With that change in law comes a change in expectations out of the new law of Christ, this new covenant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, we have uh, the chance to hear these difficult things. I also thank you, Father, for the patience to consider them truly in our own lives. I know, Lord, that there will be times when things of this, of this maturity come to us and we may not be ready to hear them. They may be beyond our needs in the moment as we struggle with sin or we struggle with other concerns. And that's okay, Father. You bring us things at your will and according to your timing. But then we must also consider there will be a time when these things matter, perhaps more so than they do for us now. That we will consider the law, Father, as having its purpose alongside something that was given for greater reasons. Maybe, Father, we will be convicted in how we live, that the law itself has become too prominent in our life. It has superseded our order as priests of Melchizedek. Or for some, Lord, maybe it's an opportunity for us to preach about your faithfulness to your promises. But however you choose to let us use it, Father, I pray that you'd you'd give us the wisdom to do that. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study. But more than that, Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to know you better through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.